Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Lisa, you know, if you want to send billions of dollars around the world as a corporation, there are banking systems and relationships that are already set up to do that and to do that compliantly and efficiently. But let's say you want to just move $200 around the world. The gentleman who we have next as our guest knows all about that business. His name is Ojilan Almeida. He is the president of Global Money Transfer at Western Union. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Maybe just explain to people, uh, first of all, was I accurate in describing a little bit about the business? And maybe you can build that out as a little story about describing some particular money flow that exists in the world that people may not know about. I think it was perfect. That's exactly what we do. I mean, we make it viable to send smaller amounts of money across the globe. Today, we operate in 200 countries, uh, 16,000 corridors, 130 currencies. And it's amazing. But you said corridors. Uh, maybe just explain how you use that term. Yeah, corridors is when you talk about one country to another country. So, for example, U.S. to Bangladesh is one corridor. Bangladesh to U.S. is another corridor. So it is the origin and the destiny of the money. Uh, and it's amazing to see those flows. Uh, and uh, uh, we have uh, corridors like UAE um, um, uh, to uh, Pakistan to India, um, internal corridors in Africa. But the beauty of the business is not only about the money flow, but it's about the people flow. Because we can track people flow around the globe based on the dynamics of the corridors. Well, given that, we've heard so much uh, protectionist rhetoric recently from a number of different governments and uh, attempts to restrict immigration. Have you seen that in your flows? And is that something that is somewhat of a headwind for the business? Yes, uh, we we, uh, we, operate, uh, for, we have been operating for the last 165 years. So in those years, we have seen countries enter blocks, countries live in blocks, uh, more protectionism, less protectionism. We know that there is a relation about growth and protectionism. Uh, so uh, countries get more protectionist when there's no growth. And and leaving that has been also uh, very, very useful for us. So we can, in some way, hedge the risks. So for example, if there is an issue in certain corridor, we still have the other uh, 159.9 thousand corridors to, to explore. So it's always like a trade-off. Thing. Today, we don't see the world more protectionist than before. We see pockets of protectionism. But overall, it's not one sweeping uh, movement across all of the different channels. Uh, but talking about moving money from one place to another in a secure channel really raises the question of Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of these digital currencies that have uh, been started in order to transfer money easily, no matter where you are in the world. How has that affected what Western Union does. We, don't, we, are, we, are, we are the market leaders in retail, the market leaders in digital around the globe, uh, but we're very humble. Uh, we look into those uh, startups as, uh, as learning for us, and we're very close to a lot of them. At this point, for example, if you think about Bitcoin, it's, it's just not regulated, and it still has lots of risks related to that. So we are following and seeing um, what is happening behind that. On the other side, blockchain, which is the technology behind that, 
that's a tremendous success and it's working very well and going to other industries and so forth. So we are paying a lot of attention to all those things. And uh, we, 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 we pay attention to the startups, we pay attention to the new stuff that is coming along. And we have always the option of copying with our scale or buying. So, How do you respond to those people who want to understand the pricing model that you have because the consumer, to consumer business has been under intense competition? Yeah, I think uh, uh, that, that's, that's a great point. But the price is, is really dictated by the market today, right? We have been gaining market share in the last years, which shows me that our value equation is working well. But you're going to see very different prices around the globe. So, for example, in, in corridors that are more competitive, you're going to see very low price. In corridors that are not that competitive, the price is higher. So it's all about competition, right? I want to go back to something that you said that you would consider buying some of these competitors. Is that on Western Union's radar to possibly purchase one of these digital currencies? We are always open. We are always open. Not digital currencies. Uh, any any play or any new technology that comes. Like right? a Euronet, for example? Uh, any 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 kind of different uh, technology that comes. I think Euronet is not a new technology by itself. But if we feel like there is something new that is easier to buy than just to create... What, what kind we'll of thing? That. What kind of thing? Today, to have you... To tell you the truth, there is nothing very clear in our radar that is coming very new that we cannot um, copy and paste. So, for example, five years ago or ten years ago, we were, very, we we're not that strong on digital. And then we start to see the movement of the industry, the move of the consumer. But before you continue, oh, sure. I'm trying to understand. Does that mean that you actually were just taking money, cash, and shipping it across the seas? No, it was that wasn't what what you're talking about. What, what are you talking about when you say digital? No, just uh, the, 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 thank you for that. Uh, we we separate the business in two parts. One is originated by cash. So when you enter a location of us and put the cash over there, and then the money up, it, it is digital, right. but it is originating cash. And there is another part that is originated directly from an account. So you enter our Wu.com site or our app and you send money directly from your account, debit card, credit card, or Apple Pay, for example. So you can send that. So digital, I'm talking about origination in digital. That origination in digital was not really um, a, a real factor 10 years ago. Then everything started. Five years ago, our business was embryonic on that. Then we started learning around the globe, and today we are the market leaders after five years, growing more than the industry. So uh, we have not seen yet something very uh, new enough for us in the market so we would acquire. At this point, uh, I think that we, we don't see any, any disruption, any important disruption. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly a fascinating business and market. Ojilon Almeida, president of Global Money Transfer at Western Union. He's based in an airplane, but I guess technically uh, in Miami. We've been hearing a lot about the very hot housing market in the U.S. over the past few years, and yet construction workers still are not building enough homes to sate demand. Construction starts for new homes have declined for three straight months, and permits were at a one-year low in May. Uh, this raises a lot of questions, and who better to answer them other than Logan Modashami? He's senior loan officer at AMC Lending Group, and he comes to us uh, now from Irvine, California. Logan, can you give us a sense of what this sort of restraint is all about with respect to housing starts, and does it point to even higher prices going forward? Well, first, I disagree with the thesis that the housing market is very hot and strong, and, and I would uh, 
focus on new home sales. You know, the reason why Housing Starts hasn't hit the 50-year moving average of 1.5 million is that if you look at new home sales, you adjust it to population using a six-month moving average, it's below five of the last six recessions. So why would the builders build more single-family homes when monthly supply for them is higher in this cycle than in the previous cycle? So it makes sense to me why the builders aren't building because the demand isn't there. And if you look at existing home sales today, it came in at 5.62 million, you know, but still, uh, if you look at mortgage demand, it's still back to 1998 levels. So there's, there's nothing that warrants a strong, hot housing market if you base it on mortgage demand. On cash buyers, yes, cash buyers are very strong, even, even this year's, but there's nothing out there in the new home sales data or the mortgage application data to warrant a, a very strong housing cycle. All right, so having uh, said that, maybe you can extrapolate and uh, connect that with perhaps some other bits of conventional wisdom that you think are not necessarily accurate. Well, n- number one, we don't have the demographics in the cycle to have a strong housing uh, market. Uh, we're very young still. Uh, second, there is no tight lending out there. Uh, uh, lending standards are very liberal. It's just that housing affordability is not as good as it appears. The, 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 the economists run a model that basically assumes everybody has 20% down. And because interest rates are 2% lower in this cycle than the previous cycle, it alleviates that uh, uh, affordability. But still, bigger homes, uh, bigger mortgage payments, bigger down payments, it's very hard, especially for young buyers, to have even 35 to 5% down, especially in coastal cities, uh, to have that kind of a, 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 a marketplace where they would be pushing up demand and then, you know, move-up buyers would actually, you know, be able to go up because I think move-up buyers are, are the area that needs to be focused on. It's very difficult for them to move up uh, because they, have, they don't have enough selling equity yet. And this is why you see sales numbers where it's at right now. And, and right. again, why the builders are not building uh, homes as much as some people think they should. You know, Logan, as you speak, I'm thinking about some of the uh, buildings that I have seen coming up uh, in in a variety of places across Manhattan and Brooklyn and the Bronx. And I think about how different some of the large metropolitan areas are from other places in the United States. And I'm wondering, uh, have you ever seen a housing market in the U.S. as bifurcated as the one that we're seeing today? No, and it goes straight into the inequality issue. The inequality issue in this country is really between homeowners and renters. It's not so much of the 1% versus the 99%. To be a homeowner, you really have to be the strong, educated middle class. And you see that in the wage data. You know, since the 1990s, college-educated Americans are really making much more money than those who never went to college. And that gap, those are your homeowners. And this is why the builders are always building for them. Because if you look at it, new new home construction is bigger and bigger and bigger homes. That's not going to help housing affordability by building bigger and bigger homes, but they're making a market really for that strong, educated middle class. And for the rest, you don't even have, you know, all the rental units are, are in theory, luxury units. They're not even building cheap, affordable uh, rental units. So there's your inequality right there. It's basically the rich versus the poor, and it's basically homeowners versus renters. Now, Logan, uh, AMC Lending has been uh, d- sort of checking on mortgage, uh, the mortgage industry in California since, not, what, 1987, right? Yes. Okay. And I'm wondering if you could then describe now, from an investor's point of view, what 
are some of the best investments and the worst investments when it comes to uh, listening to experts tell you about real estate? Well, right now, rental uh, uh, rent inflation is cooling off. We've, we've built a lot of rental units over the last few years, and we're almost at the point to where demographics are going to be favored for ownership in a few years. So you see rent inflation cooling off. So if you're looking to you know, pay up for a rental unit, be mindful of that. Um, Because unit sales are so low for new homes, you know, the the entire builder index could still have legs in a few years uh, out there because unit sales are still low, so it depends on what you want to pay for the builders out there. But, uh, again, uh, the the housing cycle should be better in a few years. But if you believe in this hot housing market or that there's some overinvestment thesis in housing, you know, you're, you're, you're laying a trap for, you know, a, 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 for sales to come down. And I, I just I can't see a very major bearish thesis for housing because it isn't very strong. It's still very low. Mortgage demand per the mortgage purchase application data is still at 1998 levels. And 2017 has been one of the weakest years year over year in terms of uh, mortgage demand growth. But still, cycle high demand, just not quite there with the, any unit sale growth for new homes or existing homes. I want to thank you very much, uh, Logan Matashami. He is a senior loan officer, AMC Lending Group in Irvine, California. You can follow him on Twitter at Logan Motashami. Well, we want to learn a little bit more about a big change in the MSCI Global Index because China is now part of the club. And here to tell us about it is Brendan Ahern. He is the chief investment officer at Crane Shares. Uh, Brendan, uh, how important is this? What, do, what are some of the specific ramifications? Well, ultimately, it means there's going to be a lot more China in investors' portfolios in the years to come. Uh, the super tanker doesn't turn on a dime. So yesterday's announcement was just the, uh, the orders coming down from, from the captain uh, to start turning that wheel. But, but China is going to grow from about 27% of MSCI emerging markets to well over 40% in the years to come. You know, one thing that I don't understand, Brendan, is mm-hmm. the construction of indexes. People think that uh, they are investing in passive funds, and yet it's a very active decision to uh, decide whether or not to bring Chinese uh, domestic shares into the index and how mm-hmm. much to include as well. I mean, what do you draw from this process uh, and whether people are actually getting exposure uh, in proportion to the actual uh, shares outstanding? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Lisa, because I think in general we talk about the growth of passive investment vehicles, index funds, and ETFs on a daily basis. There's very little examination of the index methodologies that dictate how those trillions are actually invested. So in the case of MSCI, their global investable market indices methodology is about 172 pages long, and I'm probably the only person who's actually read it. <laughs> um, so, so I think there, you, know, you, you, you can do your homework and, and understand the thought process that drives some of these changes. Uh, but it is true. There is, there is a human element, and a lot in the case of MSCI is the will and desire desire of their clients, as well as the ability to implement. And that's what really sparked the change, was the great work the Hong Kong Stock Exchange has done in implementing the Connect Trading Program. Will, Brendan, will this inclusion improve the uh, China A-share investment rules? 
Well, I, I think it's certainly uh, we got to this point of, of starting to including uh, MSCI's definition of Shanghai and Shenzhen names because of the uh, openness of the Chinese regulators uh, to abide by some of the uh, uh, rules that MSCI had asked for, as well as the implementation of this Connect Trading Program, which provides a much l- greater level of access versus the historical quota program. So, so, so we have this great trajectory and great projection of continued access, as well as in, in, in further adapting to institutional standards globally. Brendan, people estimate that this change in the MSCI indexes will funnel hundreds of billions of dollars into Chinese shares that wouldn't have otherwise gone. Uh, Do you expect this to lift the valuations or does it sort of highlight the uh, interconnectedness of the financial system that could become a problem should there be a hard landing in China? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think ultimately, yes. I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars are going to go into uh, the securities that that we hold uh, today at Crane Shares, um, kind of self-serving and highly biased. But uh, you know, that that will take time. I, this isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to take uh, many, many years. It could take between five and ten years for the full inclusion of MSCI's definition of Shanghai and Shenzhen. Um, ultimately, you know, that probably will have a uh, benefit in potentially raising the markets there. That's, uh, but, but certainly the, the world is interconnected today, and uh, this market's been very low correlated because it's been ring-fenced from, from uh, globalized fund flows, and that, that will change in, in the years to come. Well, you know, it's interesting. Part of our reporting from China includes comments from the company called uh, Spring Air and uh, Spring Airlines. This is a budget mm-hmm. carrier in China and says Correct. the decision to be included in the MSCI uh, index uh, is both an incentive and pressure. And it talks about how it will now increase transparency and boost corporate governance. That's got to be a good thing. Oh, I, I think without question, this puts a very high onus. You know, um, index funds and exchange traded funds will mechanically buy uh, the securities within the MSCI China A International uh, Index, which our uh, KBA is benchmarked to. At the same time, uh, active managers are going to be evaluating, picking amongst those 220 names that will be added next uh, next year. So, so I think I think it is a good thing. The market will institutionalize, uh, just as the market has institutionalized here over the last several decades. So that's, I think it is a net-net positive for both China as well as investors globally. Brendan Ahern, thank you so much for joining us. It's always terrific to speak with you. Brendan Ahern is Chief Investment Officer of Crane Funds Advisors, the investment manager for Crane Shares ETFs, which is based in New York. This is a tremendous change with uh, China's domestic shares being accepted into the MSCI index uh, for emerging markets in particular. And, you know, Pim, I've got to wonder how much this will lead to selling of other securities that are already in the index that are going to be taken out in order to make room for China. Uh, and and whether there's enough incoming flows to emerging markets uh, stock funds that will offset that definitely. That's why I like you because you always find the winners and the losers. Yeah, well, I mean, there's going to be there's going to be some kind of shakeout, perhaps, or perhaps this flood of cash will continue. Well, this year, we've heard a lot of angst about whether we've seen a bubble in tech stocks. But our next guest says not only is there not a bubble, but 
frankly, tech stocks are cheap. David Kudla joins us now. He's chief executive officer and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management with about $2 billion under management in Grand Blanc, Michigan. David, how can you say that many tech shares are actually cheap? Well, I don't know if I want to qualify it as cheap as much as I think they're not overly expensive. And, and, and our message is, to st- is for investors to stay with tech stocks. Don't be shaken out. This past week or so, we saw weakness in, in tech names, not based on fundamentals, just a correction in price. They've come a long way uh, this year. But when we look at the valuations, we, we, we hear a lot of people talking about the prices being the highest ever, higher than in 2000, but valuations are really still quite low. Trailing earnings uh, for the tech sector in 2000 at the peak were at 70 times earnings. Now we're only about 23 and a half times earnings, a little bit richer than the S&P 500. But this is where the growth is. This is where we see secular growth. We're not dependent on cyclical forces. So we think it's important that investors stay with the tech names. All right. Well, give us some of those names. Explain the thesis and the strategy and what you came up with. Well, we all we all know the Fang stocks that have been talked about so much, and those are the the big the Facebook, Amazon's the the, the big cap. You own them uh, all. Leaders, we do own them all. Okay, and you're not selling. And we're not selling. All right, we're go not ahead. selling. So you know, and also uh, you know, through you can own that through XLK the ETF. You can own the triple Qs, which give you a lot of the big cap names, but you can also own an open end fund like uh, Turo Price uh, Global Technology, which ha- is a global fund. So it has some of the tech names abroad, like Alibaba and Tencent, which have lower valuations and further to run. So in a, in a, in a global fund like that, you get some of the lower valuations where uh, we know that the, the valuations of the U.S. tech names have, have run up, but we think that you stay with that sector. What would you have to see to make you second-guess that and actually start selling your tech shares? I think that right now, when we look at the overall market, really what we would be more concerned about is a broader stock market correction. Uh, we had the, the so-called Trump trade earlier this year uh, the re, or the reflation trade that's kind of gone, gone by the wayside. Uh, we think that large-cap growth is the place to be right now. And what would change our outlook would really be concern about the stock market in general. But what could actually do that? I mean, right now we've seen political instability around the world. We've seen geopolitical conflict. We've seen mm-hmm. uh, questions about how quickly the U.S. can grow. The, the Fed is uh, seems dead set on hiking uh, interest rates. What what more do we need for there to be a sell-off? Our biggest concern is the Fed and the rate at which they hike rates. Um, we've had three quarter-point rate hikes in the last seven months or the last six months, and that's not a quick pace by historical standards, uh, even though it seems like a quicker pace than we've had the, the past several years, obviously. The, the concern is, is that they raised fast enough or high enough in the face of economic data. And the economic data, when we look at uh, inflation peaked in February and inflation has come down, uh, wage or uh, jobs growth is slowing, the, ec- the hard economic data is not pointing to the need for higher rates. 
And we're seeing the Fed, we think, raise for structural reasons rather than based on economic data. They've basically signaled that. If they do that too fast, too far too fast, we get a what we call a Fed event, uh, which creates a market event. Or even worse, uh, we've seen the yield curves, whether it's 2, two to 10, 2 to 30, 5 to 30s, flattening. And the closer we get to flattening or an inversion, we have the risk of recession. Well, I was going to say that that is exactly, Lisa, what you were describing earlier when we were speaking with uh, Jerome Schneider. But he didn't think that we were heading toward recession. He thought that Correct. what you're going to just see is that the Fed is trying to normalize as quickly as possible, uh, and you are seeing that flattening as a result. Yeah, indeed. You know, uh, uh, maybe you, if you could just focus then on, all right, we, we buy this scenario there are uh, no uh, shocks to this system that at least haven't been discussed, at least right now, right? I mean, you're talking about the Fed. We know that that could go wrong and so on. But uh, the thing that really sent the market down in 08 was, was the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, the, un, you know, the unknown unknown. Uh, forgiving that, do you think stocks can go much higher this year? I think stocks will continue to go higher. Uh, we still see upside to the stock market through year-end and into next year. We have strong earnings, earnings growth of 14% uh, and through the last earnings season, looking at 6.5% earnings growth for the next quarter, strong earnings growth through 2017 and into 2018. As long as those earnings come through, we think the stock market goes higher. We have room to run, even though valuations are a little bit stretched. The political events in Washington, D.C., we saw a sell-off for one day in the market recover. Uh, there's always the risk of a, of a black swan event, uh, a geopolitical event, outside event, that impacts the market for a day, a week, a month. But when we look at underlying fundamentals, we're still bullish on stocks. You know, David, when I speak with investment managers, one of the most consensus trades is Europe. Buy Europe stocks. Are you on that train? We are on that train. Uh, <laughs> right. What about emerging we, markets? We, we, we like Europe and emerging markets, uh, specifically Europe and emerging markets. Europe we like because they're, they're not as far along in this cycle as we are, um, but we're seeing earnings growth come through. So we have lower valuations in Europe than we have in the U.S. with earnings growth coming through. So we like Europe specifically, uh, an ETF we like that, not for the faint of heart, FEEU, which invests in uh, the Europe Stocks 50, uh, which has done you know very well this year. Uh, in emerging markets, we have a CAPE ratio of about 14, cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, versus 30 for the S&P 500 here in the U.S. Uh, specifically, we like India within emerging markets. At ETF, we like their skin, SCIN. You got to have skin in the game. Interesting uh, combination. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, David Kudla is the chief executive and the chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital Management. He's got more than $2 billion under management based in uh, Grand Blank, Michigan. And uh, he can be followed on Twitter at David underscore Kudla, K-U-D-L-A. Very interesting uh, technology select sector. Of course, the XLK and then uh, T. Rowe Price Global Technology, P-R-G-T-X is the symbol. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.